You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. On January 22nd, 2015, the Department of History and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies welcomed Princeton Russian History Professor Stephen Kotkin to the University of Washington. Dr. Kotkin gave a lecture entitled Stalin, Power, Geopolitics, and Ideas, based on the recently published first volume of his biography, Stalin, Paradoxes of Power. The following recording joins that event in progress. Set. The Russian language stuff was not very good and not very reliable, but now, of every ten books I read in my field, nine, at least, are in the Russian language, and only one is in English, so the English, French, or German, so the exact opposite of what it used to be when I first started out on this. So it's very important that, you know, I'm sort of acknowledging, but also challenging us, because there's so much now to assimilate. Just, it's... It, it blows your mind. You know, you could, if we had those document collections that I would work through, and we sort of stacked them up in this room, there wouldn't be enough space for the, for the secret document collections from the military and police archives. It's just phenomenal. This was unimaginable, even as many as 15 years ago when I started reading through those local going of microfilms, that we would have this kind of avalanche of materials. Right? That doesn't mean we have everything, once again. But still, the challenge is the volume, not the access. Okay, so that's a little bit about the research that went into this. I can talk more about that if anybody has questions. I don't know if you will, but now I'm going to talk a little bit about what the argument, or what the, the structure of the book is. And so there, I'll do three parts. Can't do everything, so I'll break it down into three parts. And one is what I call the geopolitical dimension. So what's the geopolitical dimension? Well, it's very simplified, but if you think about global history, right, the British and the French fight a multi-decade, more than a hundred-year war for global supremacy. And the British win. It's very surprising. The French have a bigger population, they have a larger state, etc. But the British win. By 1815, the British are now the dominant global power victorious over the French. There's no question about this. It's a British-dominated world. They will go on to form a world economy. They'll lay the infrastructure, the undersea cables. They control the shipping, all trade. 90% of world trade is in pounds sterling. It's unbelievable the extent of the domination that the British achieve. Right? This victory in this more than 100-year war over the French. But then there are two ruptures in world history. One rupture <coughs> is Bismarck's unification of Germany. In the 1870s, there's now a new power on the continent. There had been 300-something German states prior to Napoleon, 30-something approximately prior to Bismarck, and now there's this very big, very dynamic modern German power on the continent. The other rupture in world history, also the decade of the 1870s, the Meiji Restoration in Japan. It's not a new country that's formed. There's already Japan, but it's a consolidation of the nation. Also, tremendous dynamism, industrial dynamism. Also, um, uh, what some people regard as aggressive foreign policy. So you have these two new powers 
These two new powers, by the way, both in the 1870s, that happens to be the decade in which Stalin is born. So this is the world Stalin's born into. He's born into a British-dominated world, but with a new German power on the continent and <coughs> consolidated rising Japanese power in East Asia. By the way, Germany and Japan are on either side of the Russian Empire. So it's not just an eruption in world history, but they're right smack on either side, flanking powers of Russia. A couple of other things happen. China uh, undergoes a decline. The chain go broke. That's another very big story. This happens right about the time that the British are victorious over the French. So that's very significant. We're now at the other end of that. That's, that, that's over. The Chinese are no longer in that position. The other thing that happens is, of course, the victory of the North in the Civil War over the South in the United States. And this destroys the uh, version of US power that comes in the form of the slave economy. And instead, you get a railroad northern capitalist manufacturing American power in the world which, uh, in which slavery is abolished. It's very different American power. By at least the 1880s, the US is the number one economy in the world, probably. Its economic statistics are complicated historically. Certainly by 1900, there's no doubt that the US is the largest economy in the world. I think it's even earlier. But the US is not a global power yet in the sense of being involved in global affairs the way the British are. They're looming over the international system, but they are not running the international system. They are not responsible for this. So this is going to come later. In later volumes, Stalin's going to have to manage the US power question. But for the time being, he's born into a British-dominated world with the eruption of German and Japanese power. Right? So it's very important to describe this, because Stalin is going to have a really big effect. He's going to try to manage Russian power in the world. He's going to have a really big effect on the world but the world that he's born into, not just the world that we can shape any way we want. So this geopolitical dimension, there's quite a lot in the book about this. I could go into greater detail. The entire global system, which is British dominated with German and Japanese power also significant, of course, rests on the peasantry. If you dig deep down, you can see that it's the agriculture and the hard labor of millions and millions and millions of peasants which is the undergirding of this global system, right? And those peasants, it's also a complicated story. We don't want to make it out only to be a big state story and <coughs> statesmen and world powers. There's a big peasantry underneath here, and the peasantry are not free in some countries. Certainly there's imperialism, colonialism. There's all sorts of these questions, right? But this is the world, and this world then becomes the one that Stalin, as I said, is born into and then he's going to shape. There are many transformations of this world that take place. One is the Russian Empire contracts as a result of World War I, revolution and civil war. Large pieces of what used to be Tsarist Russia break off and become independent states. This has a huge effect on uh, the Soviet foreign policy as Stalin is trying to discover what it means to have a foreign policy and be in charge of it. But I'm not going to go into those details now. I just wanted to set up the geopolitical story. Let's remember that there were people before Stalin who were in charge of Russian foreign policy. So there's a Russo-Japanese war, as you know, 1904-1905. A big chapter in the book about that. There's, of course, World War I, where the Tsarist Empire fights against Germany, Austria-Hungary and Germany, right? The central powers, that's also prominent in the book, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, um, these issues are dealt with, or not dealt with, as the case might be, 
by czarist statesmen who have control over the wheel of the czarist state, while Stalin is just in the underground, in Siberia, in prison, in exile, not a significant figure yet. So that's why a lot of the book is not about Stalin. It's about this world that he's born into and that takes and is transformed even before he gets into power. Okay. So that's part one part. The second part of the book that I regard as significant are institutions. The, the way power works in terms of the political institutions of the country. And so there's quite a lot of story about the destruction of the Tsarist state and the war and revolution and its rebuilding and the civil war in communist fashion about how institutions arise. Right? This story seems obvious, but it's not always obvious that you can rebuild state power when it's become almost total anarchy, which is what it was in 1918. Bolsheviks have a coup in 1917, as you know, October, but there's no state, absolutely no state. They have no institutions that function. And they issue decrees, and they have meetings, and all sorts of things happen, but they don't actually have a functioning state yet. The functioning state is built beginning in late 1918 and through the Civil War in response to the attempts to overthrow Bolshevism. They begin to rebuild the state then. State building and revolution is complex and uh, surprising. For example, they introduced something called the Commissar, which is the basic function of the Soviet state but hadn't been foreseen. Right? Think about this for a second. You have officers from the Tsarist army who swore an oath to the Tsar. And now they're going to serve on your side in the Red Cause. But are you going to trust them? You need them because they're military experts. But if they serve the Tsar, will they really serve you faithfully? Or maybe they'll stab you in the back. So in order to guard against their politics flipping, you put what's called a commissar next to them. So you have a military expert and you have a commissar, and the commissar is supposed to countersign all the orders. So you have red and expert, two different functions. Now if later on the experts are going to be red, they're going to be members of the Communist Party, the military officers are going to be born in the Soviet Union, trained in Soviet schools, and members of the Communist Party. But the dualist structure, the shadowing of the state by the party, the dualist structure, which is born in the Civil War, is retained. So there are two meetings in every Soviet institution. The party cell has a meeting, and the regular institution has a meeting, even though it's the same membership. And if you go now to the archives, there's a state archive, and there's a party archive, and they're separate. And this dualism, as I say, is a product of the revolutionary process. It's unforeseen, but it's absolutely crucial to understand this regime. And the same thing applies not just to the military, where this institution is first established, of the commissar, the party official, shadowing the expert, the state, right, in the school system too. You were trained as a school teacher under the czar? Well, sure, you know your geography or you know your biology, but what about your politics? We gotta put a party group inside the school to watch you so that you don't go the wrong way on your politics and betray the revolution in the schools, everywhere. Everywhere there's expertise that has to be watched for proper politics. So this model of the state, the shadowing model, party state, it is a party state in which both the party and the state continue to exist even after the state becomes completely 
authority, right? So once again, there's a lot in the book about this institutional stuff, how the czarist regime worked, how czarist institutions functioned or didn't function, what, what the Duma, the first parliament was like, right? The, just the procedures of the Duma, all of these things which you think are obvious or to be taken for granted, the Duma paralyzed itself because there was no limit on debate. Debate with, you could never cut off debate in the Duma, so the Duma couldn't get anything done. So anyway, so this then is applied to Stalin's building of a personal dictatorship. I go through how he built, the, when did he become a dictator, and how did he build a personal dictatorship. There's a very close institutional story about Stalin's personal dictatorship arising in the 1920s. I just focus on his, the big geopolitics framework, the institution story, and then the third piece is ideas. Right, the third piece is ideas. The most interesting fact, the most important fact, the overriding fact about the Communist Party archives and archives is that they spoke the same way behind closed doors as they did in their propaganda. The bourgeoisie, imperialism, the petty bourgeoisie, this is how they talked behind the scenes when they didn't expect anybody to find out what they were talking about. They didn't say, oh, all this garbage about class warfare. Can you believe these people buy this junk? <laughs> That's not what they said. They argued for hours and hours and hours on end about class politics, about class categories, about class definitions. Guess what? They were communists. They were communists. That's the most important fact. And so without ideas, you can't make sense of this thing. Do the ideas explain everything? No, of course they don't explain everything. Does Marxism, Leninism give you the, all the things that happen in this country? No, of course not. There's geopolitics, there's institutions, and there's ideas. But without the ideas, you cannot make sense of this thing. If you downplay the ideas or exclude the ideas, that's Stalin's apartment in the Kremlin. He lived that Pachesny Dvor, that's Stalin's dodger. The apartment is the only 17th century Boyar residence surviving from the Kremlin. That's where his wife shot himself in 1932. And I mean, okay, that's uh, the son. Oh, that's uh, little Stablana, the mother. That's their um, portrait that was in Stalin. Oh, that's the nanny. And that's the woman who ran Stalin's household, Karolina Thiel. And that's Wichita, the nanny. That's big Marshal Kosutsky. Anyway, we'll get back to the photographs in a little bit. I just want to lay out this, the nature of the story, right? So now let's go into some of the details or some of the big questions that might be interesting. So for example, people ask me, when did Stalin become a dictator? Constantly asking me this, when did Stalin become a dictator? It's a great question, and I set out to answer this question. You know, was it when he first did collectivization of agriculture, 1929? Was it when he did the purges and murdered his own elites in 1937, 1938? You know, so when is it? Um, when he triumphed over Nikolai Bukharin or whatever. So it turns out that in April 1922, in April 1922, a new position was created called General Secretary of the Communist Party. Now Stalin had already been performing the functions of running the party, and the party, of course, was the power that organized all the meetings, set the agenda, liaison with the police, liaison with the military, liaison with the foreign embassies, right? It's run through the party apparatus, and Stalin is already de facto in charge of this thing before April 1922. But in April 1922, Lenin decides to create a special position to formalize Stalin's power. So Lenin's the head of the government. He's the number one. Stalin will be his right hand. 
the General Secretary of the Communist Party. There's no question that Lenin intended this. There's no question that this position already had considerable authority in Lenin's understanding of it. There's also no question that Lenin was the number one. But what happens in May 1922? April 1922, creation of a new post-general state. What happens in May 1922? Lenin has a stroke. So how do you like that? You create a position of a number two who's going to control all the levers of power on behalf of the number one, and then the number one has a stroke and gets incapacitated. When does Stalin become a dictator? Right then. You see, Stalin is in power. There's no succession struggle to Lenin in the normal sense. You see, because the other people, they're not in power. He's in power already when Lenin has the stroke. Lenin is not anticipating having a stroke. Nobody's anticipating that Lenin's going to be incapacitated, that all of a sudden the number two position is going to have all of this weight. But that's exactly what happens. This doesn't mean that Stalin's personal dictatorship is born right then and there. It's the potential to form a personal dictatorship which requires tremendous skill. And as I said, I go through the book showing how Stalin creates the personal dictatorship by doing the job of General Secretary of the Communist Party, beginning in April 1922, when it's formed. So the first correspondence between Stalin and Yagoda, the future head of the secret police, and now number three or number four person in the secret police. The, the correspondence begins in April 1922, when Stalin is performing the function of General Secretary of the Party, liaison with the secret police. He liaisons with the head of the secret police, Dzerzhinsky, and then he picks others inside the secret police that he's also going to use as his agents in the police and help him. And they're duty-bound to work on his behalf because he's general secretary of the party. And he speaks, quote, in the name of the Central Committee. But he doesn't trust them, and so he finds enemies. You see, Yagoda, who is not number one but is now cooperating with Stalin, doesn't have a background in counterintelligence. But the guy who founds counterintelligence, Farauchi, whose father is a Swiss cheesemaker and takes the name Artuzov, he hates Yagoda because Yagoda is not a real professional. He doesn't have real tradecraft. He doesn't have real counterintelligence. So there's poor relations, anger, bitterness between Yagoda and Artuzov, the head of counterintelligence. So what happens? So I'm going to recruit Artuzov into his circle. Yagoda is going to give Stalin information on the whole secret police, because he's ambitious and wants to get number one eventually, and Artuzov is going to watch Yagoda behind his back on Stalin's behalf, right? So we see this process. We see some more uh, issues like this before we go to questions. So the, the when did he create, when was he a dictator? He had the potential for a personal dictatorship already in spring 1922, and he would have had been quite a wallflower not to exercise this power, right? He's the one who sends out the information, or not, to all the machines, to all the localities. Right? He gathers all the information. It all comes through the party secretariat. He's the one, as I say, liaison with the police, liaison with the military, liaison with the foreign embassies. He has the cipher codes. He's the only one with the cipher codes. You need a special pass to get into Stalin's wing. We'll see his, his office a little bit later. And so, He's sitting on the levers of power in a secret conspiratorial regime. Right? And so he would have to have said, you know what, this is unfair. It's not fair that, Len that I got this position and that Lenin got a stroke 
and that you guys can't control the military, that's not fair. Why don't you control the military? I won't do that. Why don't you control the secret police? That wouldn't be fair if I got control over the party, the police, and the military. Why don't you take the cipher codes over to your office? Because it's unfair if I'm the only one who controls the cipher codes. Why don't you send out the directives in the name of the party? Because if I'm the only one allowed to send out the directives in the name of the party, that's just not right. That's really unfair. Right? He would have had to be a, a, quite an interesting person to have refused to try to create the personal dictatorship within the conditions that he inherited. You know, we have these documents of the party meetings that they knock down, drag out discussion, and they'll, they'll fight, and they'll have a vote, and they'll record what the vote was and what the decision was. And then they all go back to their offices. He goes back to the secretariat, and he implements the decision, or he doesn't. And what can they do? They don't even know. They don't even have the information. There are meetings in which they're having a discussion, and Stalin puts, puts up his hand and says, you know, uh, four months ago I put down a revolt in the Caucasus. It's 1920s. They look up and there was a revolt in the Caucasus. <laughs> right? Yes. And so there's this concentrated power the nature of this regime, I describe how this regime came into being, as I said, and then I describe how Stalin built a personal dictatorship inside the dictatorship because uh, there were some accidents, like Lenin's stroke and incapacitation, and there was some skill on Stalin's side. You know, other factors involved as well. Uh, the abilities or lack of abilities of his rivals. But they had to oust him. They had to remove him. He had power. So the succession struggle was could they remove him, not who was going to succeed Lenin. It's a different view, I hope, that I've presented in the book. Okay, let me take another question, which I think is a big question. Like I said, I don't know how to do this talk. The book is really large, it's sprawling, it's got a, a lot of stuff in it, and you get about 45 minutes for a talk like this. And so, sort of, what do you do? Right, so you're seeing now, like I predicted, that I'm not doing this well, and I don't really know how to do this, but this is it. Okay. I hope one of you, at least, based upon the law of averages, will be inspired to go forward and read it then. Okay. There's always one in a crowd. So let's go with the sociopath. When does Stalin become a sociopath? You know, like the question of when does he become a dictator, when does he become a sociopath? I've also a really great question. What's the answer to that question? So in going about trying to answer that question, uh, you have a lot of stuff which people remembered later on. Those who survived and somehow got out into the emigration and knew Stalin when he was young maybe, or heard about something that Stalin did from somebody else, after Stalin had murdered everybody, suddenly remembered something he said way back when, in 1907, or 1912, or 1916, or whatever it might be. Aha, that's when he was a sociopath. You see, the problem with that stuff is, it's hearsay, it's not documented, it's after he's become the murderous tyrant. And so I decided instead, what they say in real time, what they say that's recorded at the time, especially the people who worked right alongside him, those who work most closely with Stalin. When did they begin to fear sociopathic behavior on his part so that the revolution was in danger and their personal lives were in danger? 
That strikes me as a better approach than gathering all the fabulous hearsay, some of which could be true, I don't know, but instead of gathering the subsequent reminiscences, looking back, to go in real time forward. And so there's quite a lot of stuff in the book about this. I'm going to take one example. Oh, so there's this thing called the Testament. Lenin's Last Testament, Lenin's Political Testament, Lenin's Letter to the Congress. In December 1922 and in January 1923, Lenin is alleged to have dictated six of the characteristics, his evaluation of six different people in December 1922. And in January 1923, he's alleged to have called for Stalin's removal in dictation that subsequently became known as Lenin's Testament. It's in every single textbook. If you've taken Professor Young's course, if you've accidentally gone to a lecture on Soviet history before, you've probably heard this stuff. So what do you do? You go, you go to the archive and you ask to read the testament, right? You're thinking there's probably a copy in Stalin's personal archive, since he kept everything just about. And although his archive was subsequently cleaned out, there's a lot of very damning things about him in his own personal archive. It's not there. It's not in Lenin's archive either. You think, well, it's weird. You see, because when Lenin gave the dictation, there are occasions where we have the original document, which is a handwritten document by one of the secretaries in shorthand. If you've ever heard somebody speaking and tried to take notes, like for example, <coughs> one time you went to one of the lectures that you're supposed to attend as a student instead of skipping them, right, in some of your courses. If you went to the lecture and the professor talks really fast and, or the professor talks at all, it's hard to write everything down. So sometimes you take shorthand notes. You write the beginning of the word, and the end of the word, you use initials for things, and then later on you can figure it out. You know your system, right? This is basic stenography or shorthand. So there are some documents in the secretary's hand of Lenin's dictation like this. But the most important document in Soviet history, allegedly, there is no shorthand, handwritten, stenographic account. There are only typescripts. Moreover, the typescripts changed over time. They're not the same typescript from the beginning. And I thought, that's weird. How could that be? If this is, I mean, what document could be more important than Lenin's testament, right? The founder of the regime. And you would think that there would be a closer examination of this and discussion of it. Well, guess what? It's not clear, to me at least, or to Valentin Sakharov, who in 2002, 12 years, 13 years ago, wrote a book about this, a 700-page book about this, about Lenin's so-called testament. It's not clear that Lenin dictated this document, which would be significant. Right? We know when it became called Lenin's testament. Trotsky and his followers wrote that on the document in early, in, 1920, in spring 1923, when they circulated it. Uh, in, in the in underground, they circulated underground in a party struggle, and they were called to account. Dzerzhinsky had a meeting of the Party Control Commission saying, you can't do this. That's when the appellation Lenin's Testament got affixed to the government. We know all sorts of stuff like that, but here's the part that's important that I wanted to bring to your attention. Not just, I'm not saying it's a forgery. I have no idea. I'm just saying that it's, it's not proof. There's no proof. There's no documentary evidence that this is Lenin's dictation. It could have been, but it also could have been his wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, interpolating Lenin's words. 
There's documentation about how Lenin couldn't speak. There's a lot of stuff from the doctor's journals that cast doubt on his ability to dictate stuff like this. But anyway, here's the interesting part. So it's supposedly, according to the mythology, Lenin's uh, last will and testament, therefore, going to be revealed after his death, <laughs> read to the party congress after his death. So in May 1923, with Lenin still alive, Krupskaya hands a copy to Zinoviev. Zinoviev is a high official in the regime with whom Krupskaya has been living in Zurich before the revolution. Lenin was in Zurich. Zinoviev was with him. Uh, his wife, earlier wife Zlata, was friends with Krupskaya. They were relatively close. And so she goes to him with the document. And it's the first document only, the December, allegedly December 1922 document, shows it to Zinoviev. You know, to, 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 Trotsky's no good, Stalin's no good, this and that, right? That document. And nothing much happens. And then, poof, lo and behold, in June 1923, she hands him a second document. She hands him the document calling for Stalin's removal. Now, if she had that document already, if it was dictated by Lenin in January 1923, why didn't she hand her Zinoviev both documents in May 1923? Why, after seeing the failure of the first document, does the second document come to light? It's a little bit suspicious, right? Well, anyway, so here's the question. If Stalin is a sociopath, let's forget about whether you're ambitious or not. Zinoviev is tremendously ambitious. He would love to be Lenin's successor. He imagines himself as Lenin's successor. He agitates to give the political report at the party congress, which only Lenin had done before, essentially. And Zinoviev pushes and shoves, because Lenin can't make the party congress, he's sick. Zinoviev says he wants to give the political report in Lenin's place. So he's very ambitious. But let's leave the ambitious part aside just for a second. Here's a document allegedly from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal. And if you think Stalin is a sociopath, if you think he's a danger to the revolution in June 1923, if you think he might be personally dangerous to you, what are you going to do? You're going to abide, first of all, by Lenin's dictate and say, remove Stalin. You're going to force a meeting, which Zinoviev had the authority to do as a member of the Politburo, and say, you know, it's time to implement Lenin's will. You don't even have to mention at the meeting that it's because Stalin is a sociopath. You might say that, you might not. But if you believed it, you could even not say that. But certainly, are you going to do nothing? What does Zinoviev do? He meets in a cave. He meets in a cave secretly with Nikolai Bukharin and two other people in Kislovodsk, which is a, a resort in the south. They're on vacation. They're on holiday. Kislyavadi, right? The, the, the those hot mineral waters. Kislovodsk. And they concoct a scheme not to remove Stalin, but to appoint Zinoviev and maybe one other person alongside Stalin in the secretariat. Because Zinoviev is Stalin making all these decisions without consulting us. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not what was intended. So, not removal. If you think this guy's a sociopath, let alone that you have ambition, you're going to try to remove him rather than put yourself alongside him so that you can maybe counterbalance his power a little bit. What's very interesting further, not just that they don't try to remove Stalin, which I would have done if I were ambitious for sure, let alone if I was worried that he was going to kill me. <laughs> they try to get Lev Kamenev, who's back in Moscow with Stalin, in on the thing to counterbalance Stalin's power by 
infiltrating, jamming Zinoviev and somebody else into the Secretariat. And what does Kamenev say? This is Lev Kamenev, who has known Stalin for 20 years at this point. Summer of 23, he's had a 20-year acquaintance with Stalin. And Kamenev is no ignoramus in politics. He's the one who's given Stalin the Russian translation of Machiavelli in 1904. The 1869 Russian translation of Machiavelli's The Prince, Kamenev has given it to Stalin as a gift in 1904, when they're together in Tiflis, now Tiflis. And so you're not going to say that Kamenev is naive. He's the biggest intriguer going next to Stalin. Politikant, politikanstva, as Dzerzhinsky said of uh, Kamenev. So he says, forget about it. We're not even going to do this, insert people into the secretary. You're exaggerating the problem here. You're exaggerating the problem that Stalin is making decisions all by himself or that there's some kind of trouble here. So if Kamenev doesn't perceive, knowing the guy 20 years, and there's a, a dictation from Lenin calling for Stalin's removal, and Kamenev says, no, they don't do it. Can you really think that by summer of 1923 it's obvious that Stalin is a sociopath? Now, this is only one episode, obviously. There has to be more evidence. But I gotta tell you, this is a pretty big episode. Moreover, Stalin begins to become haunted by this testament. The testament begins to eat at his soul because his entire persona, his legitimacy, is Lenin's heir, Lenin's pupil, Lenin's faithful successor. And there's this document circulating on the ground that everybody in the party has heard about. Because that's how rumor is, you know how rumors are. And it calls, it's Lenin calling for his removal. And he knows it and they know it. And he resigns. We have six, six episodes when Stalin orally or in writing resigns between 1923 and December 1927. He might have resigned more than that, but we have six documented occasions. He's constantly saying, okay, I've had enough. I carry the whole thing on my back, and all you do is whisper that let it call for my removal. Fine, I resign. Now, if he's a sociopath, it's an opportunity potential. They don't even have to conspire behind his back necessarily. He himself is resigning. But of course, somebody gets up at the meeting and says, there's no way you can resign, then we don't accept your resignation. This is the 1920s. This is not the 1930s when people are being murdered left and right. Nobody at the top of the regime has been murdered in the same way. Right? So anyway, so there's the question of when does Stalin become a sociopath is just as interesting as when does he become a dictator. And it's not clear that the people around Stalin through the mid-1920s thought of him this way. It's, it's later. It's 1927-28 that we begin to see this. All right. Can I do one more before we go to questions? All right. Um, then we'll, I'll do the photographs briefly and then we'll have questions. So this is a book about collectivization of agriculture. That's where the book ends. It ends in 1928 when Stalin's made the decision to collectivize agriculture. This is the core crime of this criminal regime. And in many ways, they still haven't recovered from this collectivization of agriculture. And so trying to explain that decision, first of all, why, and secondly, most importantly, how. How he could have possibly done this, collectivized agriculture against all this opposition. Mm -hmm. So the book is dedicated to that question. That's why it ends in 1928. Now, collectivization 
really is only beginning in 1928. So this is like when you go to a film and there's a murder, but you only hear the gunshot, you don't actually see the murder. Or you hear the gunshot, maybe you see a little blood splattering, but you don't see the corpse. So that's, what, that's how this book ends. The next volume, volume two, 1929 to 41, will give some detail about the, more detail about the press. But anyway, so this decision of collectivization is an unbelievable decision. You have to understand what they tried to do with the peasantry before Stalin. So there's a whole chapter on Stalipin and the Stalipin reforms under the Tsarist regime. Stalipin was the prime minister from 1906 to 1911 who tried to transform the peasantry. He tried to transform the peasantry into what the Bolsheviks would call kulaks, independent proprietors on their own land. Strong farmers, young farmers. Stalin's obviously going to take the opposite position. So one of the arguments then about this is sort of the geopolitics, the institutions, and the ideas all come together in the collectivization decision. Right? You can't understand it unless you understand the Soviet place in the world and this problem of capitalist encirclement. How, do they, how does capitalist encirclement come about? Well, they do a coup in Russia, and they've encircled themselves because it's a capitalist-dominated world, and they're in a validly socialist regime. So there's capitalist concern. There's all sorts of geopolitical dimensions to the collectivization story. There's the personal dictatorship, the fact that one individual could take this decision against others and impose it on the country because he had this personal <coughs> dictatorship. And then, of course, there's a story of how uh, he carried it through to the end. So think about this. Why are ideas important? The ideas part, the Marxism-Leninism. So nobody at the top of the regime says that capitalism is okay. You read through all the secret debates, all the secret documents, all the knockdown drag-off fights they have, nobody comes out and says, you know, markets are good. They say markets are exploitation. They say capitalism is evil. They say capitalism is imperialism. They say merchants are evil. They say kulaks or rich peasants are evil. They spend their day debating. If you have three cows and you work hard and you acquire three more and you have six cows, are you a kulak or not? Are you a rich peasant? Are you a bloodsucker? Are you an exploiter? Here you are going from three cows to six cows because you're working hard. The whole world economy is built upon that kind of labor, as we said at the very beginning. Peasants being able to go from three cows to six cows, which doesn't happen in the blink of an eye. And at the top of the regime, they're talking about how this is exploitation, blood-sucking, kulak, hired labor, right? wage slavery, as they call it. That's what they talk about. So nobody at the top of the regime says it's okay to do that. That's not what the debate is. It's a mischaracterized debate in the literature about the 1920s new economic policy, pluralism, yada, yada, yada. First principles is consensus. Capitalism is evil and must be transcended. This is a communist regime. Marx called it right, wage, slave, wage slavery, imperialism, you, yada, 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 you got it. And this is how they talk. And you've got to get rid of it. Alf Hegel, as Hegel said, right? Transcendence of capitalism. Transcendence. This is an avowedly socialist regime. They are Marxist-Leninists. This is what they talk about behind closed doors. But there's an argument, and this is what the argument is. Alexei Rikov, who's the number two guy in the regime, he has Lenin's position, head of government. 
He's not as strong as Lenin, but he's no weakling. He's the second most powerful person after Stalin. There's no question. Really un important figure. Rinkoff is the one who stands up at the meetings when Stalin resigns and says, you can't do that. Stalin, of course, will murder Rinkoff in subsequent years. Rinkoff says, you know, we can't do this because it'll ruin everything. I'm not pro-capitalist. I'm not pro-market. I'm not pro-wage slavery. I'm a Marxist like you, you are. But if we try this, it'll be disastrous. Bring catastrophe. And the reason is, is in 1928, 1% of the arable land is collectivized. 1% of the arable land is collectivized. And the average size collective farm is 16 to 17 households. The only people collectivizing are the ones who can't farm by themselves. They're just totally useless. And you know those people who uh, help you with the curve in your classes? Right? You know those people? That's who's collectivizing. They can't survive on their own. They join these pitiful collective farms. 1% of arable land. So there's no voluntary collectivization. There's only coerced, coercive collectivization. And Solomon agrees with this, but he's ready to do the coercion. But Rico says, if you do that, you'll ruin everything. We just had this new economic policy. We just barely recovered from the World War I, the revolution, the civil war, the famine. I mean, we're just surviving here. If you destabilize everything, you won't get collectivization, because that's actually impossible right now. And instead, you'll ruin the stability and the uh, breathing space that we've achieved. And Stalin says, you are not, you don't have the courage of your own convictions. Are you a Marxist or not? Are we going to have kulak farms, or are we going to have socialism in the countryside? This is how he blackmails them, right? This is how he forces the debate. So Rikov was right. Rikov was correct. It was catastrophic. It was much worse even than he predicted. They lost more than 50% of their livestock. Five to seven million people died in a famine. The regime itself was destabilized. Mass uprisings across the country. This episode was more catastrophic even than Rikov predicted. But did Stalin retreat? Did he say, oh, you know, mistake? We can't build socialism in the countryside. We're going to have to do it with Kulak farms? No. He holds the line through it all. Through the uprisings, through the bloodshed, through the famine, through everything else. The willpower is astonishing. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. I'm not sure anybody else in the regime could have done this. To have pushed collectivization all the way through, seeing what a catastrophe it was. It makes no net contribution to industrialization. It's not